Welcome to this episode of Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. Before diving in, I wanted to thank our headline partners, the Octopus Group. Octopus is one of Europe's largest and most active venture capital investors. Investing more than 200 million a year, it backs UK entrepreneurs at every stage of their journey. From ideas on a page right through to IPOs and has funded some of our nation's biggest success stories from Kazoo to Depop. Octopus was started 20 years ago in one of the co-founders' bedrooms with one phone line and a copy of the Yellow Pages. Now Octopus is one of the most powerful engine rooms of the UK entrepreneurial community and has backed and developed several unicorns themselves, including Octopus Energy. I am proud that Octopus have backed this podcast since the second series and they are the reason we are now able to put such a professional show together. To hear more about what they do, it is worth checking out previous episodes with the founders Chris Hewlett, Simon Rogerson or one of their venture partners on the future of health tech, Pooja Seeker. On to today's show. Sophie, welcome to Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. So you're on to your second startup, The Garden, after Multiverse. Why do it all again? It's a very good question. Um, Other than the fact that I don't think anyone would ever employ me again, I'm pretty sure I'm not employable. Um, I think it comes down to what you love to do. And I love to, to build companies. I love to build teams. I love solving problems. I love being able to create stuff. Um, I think it's a real privilege to be able to to try and solve problems that you see and and bring people together to do that. Um, and I think with the garden, you know, it was, it was a it was something I wanted to see exist in the world. I saw an opportunity to really look at learning and redefine it in a way that was focused more on to that intrinsic joy that you get from learning and and make something really beautiful in the world. Um, and I think, you know, when you say why again, I think, why not? It's more a case of why not than why do it again? I I can't really imagine doing anything else right now. Where did the name The Garden come from? That is a great question, actually. So last year, when I was thinking about this idea for The Garden and talking to my co-founder Simon about it, I was reading a book about a Greek philosopher called Epicurus. Now, I don't normally read, read Greek philosophy. I was actually kind of interested in in some of the ideas he had about aging uh, and some, somebody recommended the book and I was reading about Epicurus. It's quite a hard slog in the list. Um, but one of the things that inspired me about Epicurus was he had this space, a garden outside Athens, and it was a physical garden. It was called the garden. And it was a place where he brought people together to have conversation, to eat together, to learn from the great teachers. And it was really inspiring, this idea. You can just imagine it, right? This beautiful garden, sun coming through the, the leaves of the trees, an orchard, people eating and drinking and talking. And it just sounds like a really wonderful convivial community. Um, but what was particularly exciting to me about this garden was at a time when society was incredibly stratified, you basically had three rich men and then everyone else. There were, you know, there were slaves, there were women, everyone else was a second-class citizen. This was a garden that welcomed everyone. And so it didn't matter whether you were a slave or a a woman or a rich man, everyone was welcome in the garden. I just thought that was a really inspiring idea, a convivial community of learning that was welcoming to everyone. And so the idea was, can we build a modern version of the garden? 
And quite frankly, it just felt like the right name for this space, this community of the curious that we wanted to build. So that's why we called it The Garden. And I think you kind of really ex- explained it there almost, but what is the, what was the, the purpose of it? So The Garden is a community for the curious. We want to bring people together who have curious, inquisitive minds, and they can come together to learn from world experts and each other. Really, it's about enabling anyone, anywhere to access the world's greatest minds and each other. And what that means is we're trying to give people access to the knowledge and the ideas and the people who have shaped and continue to shape our understanding of the world. So we find some of the world's greatest minds, leading academics, passionate experts in many different um subjects and sectors and we bring them to the garden so that people can hear from them and ask them questions and so we do these live talks um where you feel like you're in the room with this leading expert and it's it's not like zoom it's netflix quality um, and you can actually put your question to this leading expert and hear the answer in real time and you can also have conversations with other people who are interested in the same topics as you so it's about giving people access, but also creating conversation. And I think that's really important. And do you think you would ever build a physical space similar to ancient Greece? That's a really good question. I mean, a lot of people ask me, are we going to do sort of offline events? But I think that the the idea of the garden is that it doesn't matter where where in the world you are, you can hear an academic from Japan. Last night we had a professor from Brazil. We've had many academics from um, all over the United States and Canada, as well as the UK and Europe, speaking in the garden. And there is something wonderful about everyone having the same experience. It, It doesn't matter that you don't live in central London or in New York, you get access to the world's greatest minds. And that that sort of democratization of learning, that democratization of ideas is really powerful. And I think everyone has that intrinsic love of learning. It's both personally important, but I think it's very socially important that we continue to sort of, you know, build our curiosity, um, that we are able to learn from people who are working at the cutting edge of different subjects, that we get access to them. Um, and so I think staying digital first is actually one of our advantages. And what have you learned from your previous time, which we'll, we'll come into later, you're a second time founder. What have you learned when building a team from scratch this time? I'm, you know, I've, I spent a lot of my career in the recruitment people space. I, before business school, I worked at Egon Zender, which is an executive search firm. So I got early exposure, exposure to the importance of people decisions. Um, after business school, I, um, I worked for a company called Hired.com. I was the first international hire for them. And it's a recruitment marketplace. We, we've sort of flipped the recruitment model on its head. And I built a team there, but I was also helping lots of companies building their um, product and engineering talent. And so I really started to see the, the power of hiring in moving the needle for these tech companies. And Hired actually was a, an incredible company because... The founding team was very focused on bringing in only exceptional talent within the team itself um, and had some strong views about how you interview and how you reference people. And so that has really stuck with me. So both at The Garden and at my previous company, Multiverse, uh, making good people decisions has always been very important and holding that 
high bar around excellence of talent is, is something I care a lot about. In fact, you know, excellence is excellence and building something extraordinary together is one of our values to garden. So I think one of the lessons I've learned from all of these companies uh, is the importance of hiring great people and great hiring great people doesn't mean looking at, you know, the academics on their CV or, you know, brand names. It's about really understanding their competencies, understanding whether you have shared values, understanding the person's drives and motivations, because you can teach skills, but you cannot teach values and motivation. And, you know, when you're in a, when you're building an, an early stage company, you need people who are ambitious and committed and have done extraordinary things. Um, and he'll willing to bring that energy to help you build something extraordinary. So you're looking for something quite special. And where do you go to hire now for those then? Oh, I think there are lots of places. Finding talent is actually, I don't think, the hardest thing um, because there are lots of tools out there. There's LinkedIn, There's there are recruiters, there's platforms like Hired, there's a platform called Otter that I think is doing very well in the the, the tech sector in the UK, I'm, I'll put my hand up. I, I angel invested in, in that one because I really believe in what they're doing. I've got a candidate focused approach. Um, so I think, I think finding talent is not the hard thing. I think assessing talent and then um, converting talent is the hard thing. And what, what do I mean by that? So assessing talent is you've got to remember that you've, you want to only find people who are the right fit for your team and and your stage of company, but also who bring that outstanding quality to the table because, you know, the businesses are really only as good as the people that they have in them, in my opinion. So you know, being clear about what kind of questions you want to ask and, and holding that talent bar is really important. And then taking references, I really believe that's, that's really critical. But the other skill I think a lot of founders forget is you have to sell. You have to be able to take people on a journey. You have to be able to sell your vision to them. You have to explain why they should join you because if you, if you're trying to get the best people, they are going to be in demand. So it's not about finding them. It's about converting them. Yes. No, I think that's a, um, a very good way of putting it. Um, and what was your, what was your first hire at the garden? The first hire was a fantastic, uh, female leader in our team, um, in product management. So Laura is, is an amazing uh, individual and she was excited to come on our journey with us, cares about the problem that we're solving and, and brought a, a skill set that we really needed early on. So product management is all about understanding the customer, understanding the needs of the customer and designing an experience, whether it's a product experience, a tech product experience or a service experience or a journey um, into an experience that the customer will love. And I think the companies that do well are those that really try and understand what people need and want and love. Um, and that's what she's really exceptional at. So I feel very lucky that she joined us on this journey. You've had two quite different co-founders and it generally is a trait that most people have a co-founder, not all entrepreneurship companies do. Um, but you've done it twice now in different ways. What makes you think, I want to run a business with you? I think it's a really good question, you know, to have a co-founder or to not have a co-founder. I mean, the first time um, when when you and I started Multiverse, I mean, that was an opportunity that came along. I wasn't, I was looking to start a business and I met you and 
And we had a shared vision about a problem that we wanted to solve. Um, and we kind of clicked around that, that passion for the problem and around some shared values and a shared excitement. Um, so I was planning on building something on my own. The lesson I learned from, from the experience of building Multiverse and you and is, is still leading that business and, and continuing to take it to great heights is building a business is really hard. And there is something wonderful about having that one person or two people that you are sharing that experience with because it is really hard at times. You need to be able to go and laugh with that person, celebrate with that person, cry with that person. And there were definitely tears and celebrations along, along the way, both with Multiverse and the garden um, already. So I think, I don't think I would do it without a co-founder. Um, I think it, it's very hard to, to do it on your own. Uh, I really do respect those people who, who do it. But that shared burden is really important. And I think you can sometimes do more if you have two of you. And I think with, with you and I, we, you know, we, we had quite similar skill sets, um, which meant that in the early days, I'd say for the first couple of years, that was really a multiplier for us. I mean, basically, he could do what I did and I could do what he did at times. Um, he, there are definitely things that he's better at than I am. And there are things that I'm better at than he is. But, but ultimately we could like multiply each other. And, you know, that if we were focusing on sales, for example, we could both go out and sell. Um, if we were both, if we were looking to hire, we could both go and recruit. So there were things in those early days that meant that we almost doubled ourselves by having the two of us. But obviously as the business grew, that advantage waned because, you know, you need one person to sort of step forward and be to be the CEO and to lead and um you hire senior executives to take on more functional roles so that advantage of having two of you with similar skill sets waned the second time around I was much clearer um that I was bringing certain things to the table because I'd had this experience and I really wanted someone with me who complemented those skill sets who brought something different um and I wanted to step up and be the CEO of this business and so when I was thinking about bringing on a co-founder, I mean, Simon, my co-founder now, um, we'd known each other for a few years. We had a mutual friend who had worked with him. Um, we talked actually at various points about working together and we just started having conversations about, you know, what it would be like to build a company together and what problems we're excited about solving. But I think the thing that really brought us together was shared values. I mean, you're going to be working with this person for five 10 years, you know, you've, you've got to, you've got to have those foundational values to care about the same things. I also think it's really important that you have the same level of commitment, um, and the same excitement around the problem because you have to be able to ride a lot of waves together. So you don't necessarily need to be best friends. I think, I think some people do found businesses with their best friends. You do become very close, of course, because you share a lot of things, but I think it's about in my case, in this, this situation, it's about having um, you know, complementary skill sets, but also having these shared values, uh, shared commitment and shared excitement around the problem. But you know what? It's a journey. And I think you grow and evolve together and sometimes you grow apart and you have to keep taking stock of what you both bring to the table and what you both want. And, um, and I think I come into this co-founder relationship with probably um, clear, like a clearer view but you never know how things are going to go. And, and at the moment, you know, I, we're a really strong team and I'm real, very lucky to, to have him as my co-founder. 
What's been the highlight of the garden so far? You mentioned you've been through some of them already. I mean, the highlight is always the the talks that we have, the garden talks that we have with some of the world's greatest minds. I mean, it is such a privilege to be able to speak to people who are working on problems at the cutting edge of what we know and to be able to ask them questions and to be able to hear their, their ideas and share their passion. It is such a, it's such a thrill. Um, these are people that you, you rarely hear from. They are the world's leading academics on, you know, finding the molecules that, that can cure cancer, or they're working on, on finding, you know, the next planet that, you know, in, in outer, in outer space, or they're looking at, you know, studying the, the Queen's through history and they're deeply passionate about their subject. And that's such a thrill. And then it's a real highlight when people love it. I mean, the feedback we get from our members is just phenomenal. And therefore I feel like we're being of service to the world. And I think that's ultimately what you want to do as a founder. You want to build something that people love. And as a second time founder, you know, with the benefits of hindsight, doing it again, to the first-time entrepreneurs that listen to this show, what's your kind of key takeaways and, and advice to the people starting out? Building a company is hard. So you have to really want to do it and you have to really care about the problem you're trying to solve because you're going to be working your way around that problem for years and years and years, hopefully, if it's a success. The other thing is that you can't be wedded to the solution. You have to be really focused on the problem because in all likelihood, you're going to have to shift from your original vision. Like it's important to have a, a point of view. It's important to have an, a, a vision. It's, it's part of what allows you to bring other people on your journey, whether investors or um, employees or people you need to sell to. You need to be able to sell that vision to them, but you also need to be aware that you don't know all the answers. Um, your team doesn't know all the answers and you're going to have to figure it out. And that means running lots of tests, experimenting, changing, shifting, being nimble, um, and ultimately realizing there are no sacred cows. Like you, you may have to kill an idea that you were really excited about because it's not working. Um, so I think being focused on the problem uh, and not on the solution is really critical. The other thing I would say is that people decisions are always the most important decisions. At the beginning, it might just be you and your co-founder. Those first hires you make are really critical. Not just because they will help, you know, help you move forward, but also because they set the culture of the business. And so having a really high bar of who you hire, not just from a skill set point of view, but really from a values point of view, and making sure that people who join you in the early days really understand what it means to be part of an early stage startup, that you don't know what you're doing necessarily, that you don't you don't know whether this is going to work and they're comfortable with the ambiguity and risk that, that involves and they're excited about what that means in terms of creativity and testing things and learning, um, that's really important. So I would say people decisions are, are always the most important decisions. And if you get them wrong, they can come back to bite you. So being thoughtful and taking your time and taking references on people is going to be really key. And the support network that you talk about and, and have referenced before, 
you know, you're coming just after we've done a big kind of push on International Women's Day and had our kind of own International Women's Week. You've talked about having a support network of, of female founders. Can you talk us through A, kind of how you found that group um, and B, how it sort of provides ongoing support? Yes, absolutely. And it's not just female founders, though I do have a group of um, female founders and executives, a small group that we meet together for breakfast about once a month. Or actually, it's, it's evolved more into wine and dinner, which is a lie. Um, but, you know, we meet, we meet up and we, they've really become some of my closest friends and have supported me through lots of different decisions. Um, and I support them as well, whether that's personal or professional, because you've got to remember as a founder, those things are deeply intertwined. I mean, as, as you are aware, your how what how things are going in your family really impact your ability to be your best self for your business and, and vice versa. So, uh, you know, having that support on a personal level is really important. Um, I think I was just lucky to find that group. We sort of came together through a couple of people pulling various various people in. But I think it's about that commitment to spending time together regularly um, and being willing to be open and vulnerable and supportive. So that, that group of, of women, they, they celebrate each other's successes, their shoulders to cry on. They're the first people I call when I have a, a question, but it's not just that group. I think I've been very fortunate to find great people who are either mentors, role model, um, who are peers who've come up through the ranks with me, as it were, um, of, you know, of both male and female. And one of the things I did early on, actually, when I was back in, back in the day, when I ran the UK business for a company called hired.com, um, I was the UK GM of this U S company. And I created a group of people who were also UK GMs of U S companies. So we had, um, Andy, who was the, uh, UK GM of angel list. We had, um, another Andy who was UK GM of Stripe. We had the um, Omid who was the GM of City Mapper. We had we had a bunch of us who came together, and those people have become founders and investors, and over time, and, and we've all stayed in touch. And they are still people that I go to for for advice and support. So I always give advice to my team to make peer networks across the industry. I think a lot of people look for mentors, and that's great, but that is quite a it can be quite difficult to find somebody who is a true mentor who really wants to invest in you. Um, it's really hard to just go up to somebody and be like, will you be my mentor? Because you need to be able to bring something to them um, as much as them being able to bring something to you. But finding peers in your industry is something that a lot of people don't think to do. So if you're a salesperson, go and find five or six other people who are account executives at tech firms in London and meet up with them for a coffee once a month, you'll find that you can share contacts, you can set, share um, strategies of how to get new clients, you can, you'll end up talking about your personal life, you'll end up talking about how to manage your manager. And I think that those peer networks end up being the most powerful things. Agreed. I think it's, and it's amazing how you all rise together inevitably as, as well. Talking about your time at, at kind of Multiverse, kind of explain to us what it what it does um and also following on from that you have spent a lot of your career 
at the point of hiring people and so on and in that kind of talent space so it'd be great to hear about your reflections on a comment you made earlier about yeah the early hires being the most important and so on kind of what what mistakes you made and what advice you can kind of dispense to people who are looking to take those first hires now Sure. So, so Multiverse is building an outstanding alternative to university and now corporate training as well. So we, uh, in the early days, we're really focused on how do we support um, companies to find the best talent. And we believe that the best talent wasn't necessarily just people who had gone to university. There's a, a shocking statistic, which is um, only 7% of people in the UK go to private school, but something like 60% of people who get a place on graduate programs, some of the best corporates, um, went to private school. And so the university is obviously part of the there's a problem there of funneling people who've gone to the best schools, into the best universities, into the best jobs. And that is causing barriers to to people from maybe um, different backgrounds, particularly low socioeconomic backgrounds. And what we wanted to create with Multiverse and what Ewan and the team continue to do is is an outstanding alternative. So something that was as equally prestigious to the world's best universities, create an experience a community experience, a social experience that was equivalent to going to the best universities and give people incredible training that would help them get jobs at the world's best companies. And we did that by um, finding young people who had the talent and the ambition and then matching them to incredible companies like Google and Facebook and, and um, many other even smaller companies that you went to necessarily heard of where there was a real desire to bring on on this this kind of talent and we supported them with training in digital marketing software engineering data science business skills and an apprenticeship lasts for anywhere from 12 to 24 months usually on average and um and and at the same time they were getting that training they will get or also getting pastoral support they also get a community experience, connect with other apprentices. They get professional support. They get everything that you would get at a university, except they're working and they're not taking on debt. And that has also evolved because now apprenticeships are a real path for people. University isn't the only option. And it means that it's not just for career starters anymore. It's also for progression throughout your career. So you can do apprenticeship at any age. So that's what we were trying to do. And it it's going from strength to strength and now um, the team have, have opened an office in the US um, and are expanding over there as well. And I take your point around universities and uh, agree with it wholeheartedly, uh, but you do have a number of kind of prestigious names on your CV to uh, to say the least when it comes to academia, including Cambridge, Harvard and Stanford. Um, I'm just particularly interested in the MBA route that you took at Stanford because it isn't something that is a particularly well-trodden path in UK education. And it does tend to be that people go to the, the States or INSEAD further afield. I'd love to know what your kind of reflections were on what we can learn from the Valley and that whole kind of ethos and mentality that they have out there, right? You know, we started this series with Rishi Sunak talking about his time there, which is, you know, he's kind of summed it up by, if you're going to swing, swing big when it comes to entrepreneurship. And would love to hear your reflections on all of that. Yeah, so absolutely. So I have been very, very fortunate to go to some of the world's best universities and I love studying. I really enjoy the academic route. 
and it worked for me. And I didn't go to a particularly good school. I grew up in Lincolnshire. I went to um, I went to a local a local school. It was a it was a state grammar, um, and I was very very lucky because I loved learning. Um, and I was I was there when there was a generation of mostly female teachers who were um, really outstanding. They were just really amazing women who for whom the choice really when they left university was teaching or being a secretary and the expectation was they were going to give up their work when they had children and so they kind of vicariously lived through us and and I felt very fortunate to have such amazing teachers at that stage but it wasn't an amazing school and um overall and so nobody really expected me to get into Cambridge I didn't have any prep I didn't really know anyone who was who who was going to Cambridge and when I got in it was a bit of a shock to be honest um Cambridge changed the trajectory of my life but it is only really the right option for somebody who really likes studying. It's a lot of self-directed learning. It's a lot of writing essays. It's a lot about passing exams. It does open doors for you. So I absolutely would say that Cambridge got me my first job um, because it opened that door. It doesn't mean that I think that should be the only route for, for people. And I've worked with and I've hired many, many people now who do not have degrees or have degrees that are totally irrelevant to what they're working on. And I just don't believe that the academic route is right for everyone and that it doesn't mean that it should be a secondary route for people. I do really genuinely believe that they should be equally prestigious and they shouldn't be judged negatively for having gone down an academic path or a non-academic path. They should be seen as the same. And with Multiverse, we wanted to create something that had the same cachet as going to the world's best universities. So that's hopefully answers why I still, be, you know, very much believe that, that academia is valuable. That's one of the reasons I'm building the garden, but that you can still have that alternative path. Your question about that, why go and do the MBA? Um, I think there was a point in my personal career where I wasn't 100% sure what I wanted to do. Um, and I knew I loved building things. And so the opportunity to go out to Stanford and be, as, as, as Rishi said, you know, the, in the hub of entrepreneurship was such an opportunity. Um, and what it gave me was a change of perspective. There is a real feeling in Silicon Valley that you can change the world. Um, and I definitely drank that Kool-Aid. You're surrounded by people who are being so creative, trying new things. Every single day at, at, at the GSB, at the Stanford Business School, you, you were surrounded by investors coming in and having coffee at Cooper Cafe. You had um, other entrepreneurs at the beginning of their career or CEOs from big companies on campus talking about what they, you know, what they were doing. And it was just incredibly inspiring. And I think it gives you that desire to go and have an impact, to leave, leave a legacy, have a, a footprint on the earth. And that, that's what drives me. It's not about, it's not about having a big exit or, um, getting my name in the paper, but it's about having a lasting positive impact on the world and people's lives. Um, and so for me, that's what Stanford did for me. It gave me an incredible confidence that I could do that. It inspired me. And it also, obviously, one of the amazing things about it is it gives you a network of people who are doing extraordinary things, whether that's, you know, my friend Meredith, who is um, in Uganda setting up a nonprofit um, school system or friends who are building biotechs to find cures for um, 
Alzheimer's disease. I mean, it is an extraordinary opportunity and I know I'm incredibly privileged for having had it, but it, it, I hope that I can use that experience in order to change other people's lives in a positive way. Yeah, no, I, I see that. And how can we get a bit more of that ambition in the UK, do you think? I think we're starting to see that already. The nice thing is that we're starting to see the UK startup scene really evolve. I think there are organizations that have, have been trying to bring that to um, undergraduates and people who are leaving school and sort of in sort of instilling that desire to, to, to build in them. Um, when I left university, I mean, the options were consulting, accounting, banking, law. I mean, I couldn't do medicine because I'm not really good blood, but you know, there, there weren't many options. I don't feel like I was given a huge amount of careers advice. Now entrepreneurship is really seen as a route. And um, my friend, you know, Alice um, Bendick from Entrepreneurship First um, and Matt Clifford, they, they did something extraordinary early on. 10 years ago, they founded Entrepreneur First, where they, they started helping people who were interested in entrepreneurship, who maybe hadn't ever thought about entrepreneurship, start companies. And that, that idea of building incubators and accelerators has really taken off. And we're starting to see that within universities. We're starting to see that outside universities. I'm involved in something called the Entrepreneurs Hub at the Design Museum, which is all about finding people who have design skills, whether that's product design skills or fashion design skills or artistic design skills and supporting them to build businesses around that. And I think we need to see more of that kind of investment in supporting people from lots of different backgrounds to embrace entrepreneurship. Do you think there's a, there's a cultural challenge with that though, in terms of the UK is quite academia focused as you've sort of alluded to and works for you but actually design and kind of art at school isn't perhaps taken as sort of seriously as it could be in the UK because you're right it's a fundamental part now of of any business is the design you know even down to the branding etc and there's so much more of that happening you know you think when you and I were at school there were there just weren't that many kind of brands in the UK whereas now you know everyone kind of has their own brand that they're working on in a different kind of way, probably, and are touched with. And do you think that we could try and take it a bit more seriously? Definitely. I mean, I I get really upset when I think about how in the UK education system, there is this deprioritization of the arts and the humanities and, and such a focus on everyone having math skills and science skills, and there's less time for young people to build their their sort of love of learning about lots of different things I, I, it's actually something that we're trying to do with the garden which is give people an opportunity to learn about things that bring them joy that they're interested in um from from leading experts because i do believe that learning and a love of learning is intrinsic i mean when you think about it right we are all wide children i've got two children i've got a five and a half year old and a three almost three year old and um they're constantly asking me why. They love to learn. I mean, this morning, my daughter was so excited about the tip I taught her um, about how to do, how to multiply things by 10. Um, and she just just loved it. And, and she doesn't realize it's maths. She just thinks it's really cool that she can learn this thing and she can go to school and tell all her friends. 
And I, I think we need to bring that joy back into learning. And, and what brings people joy is different. We, we don't want cookie cutters. We need a rich and broad society where lots of different skills are valued. Um, and so, yes, I, I agree with you. I think we need... I think we need to celebrate artists and we need to celebrate designers and we need to find ways to bring those people together with technologists and, and business builders so that we can actually you know, use that to create more jobs ultimately. Yeah. And you are a talk about being uh, an angel investor and you know, you've spent time at Index as well, the venture capital firm. How have you found fundraising going through that a second time? So I think it, that is one of the advantages of being a second time founder that you, you already have a network in the space, whether that's with investors, you know, with, with multiverse, we raised um, several rounds of funding while I was there and, and you and has gone on to raise more rounds, um, since then. So, you know, I had access to investors, which I know is a real struggle for a lot of founders, particularly female founders and founders from minority backgrounds, like it's that access to that network is really tough. And, and I, I want to be able to help with that if I can, which is one of the reasons that I angel invest. Um, but also, um, you know, I think I had the advantage of, of also knowing what, um, was important from an investor point of view and, you know, knowing what skill sets I need around me, you know, when you're bringing on angel investors, you are giving them an opportunity to join you on a journey. You should feel that you, you know, you should feel like you're the one making the decision. It's not about sort of asking them for money. It's about giving them a chance to join you on this journey. They, it's, it's a privilege for them. Um, so you're being really clear about what you're going to get from that. It shouldn't just be about the money. It should also be about the other things that can come, whether that's contacts or advice, or sometimes just a hug. Um, you know, you need, you need those people around you. Absolutely. The empathy side of it. What's the best book you've read recently? I read a huge amount. So I'm not sure I can tell you what the best book I've read recently. I've read a book about the, the new Silk Road. I've just finished a book on um, the origins of language. I read a book called Galileo's Middle Finger that I loved. So I read a lot, mostly nonfiction. I think from a, if you're asking me sort of what are, what are the books that have really changed my life. Um, I think there are a few, I'm, I'm a big fan of, um, Oprah, are we all, uh, I think her story is incredible. And I think the lessons she's learned along the way are incredibly powerful, especially the fact that she's done so much work on herself to become more present, more self-aware, more grounded. Um, and there is a book that I read called what I know for sure that she wrote, which I think is worth a lot of people reading. Um, there's also a book, it's a really short read called This is Water by David Foster Wallace. Um, it's really a graduation speech that he gave. And what it does is it makes you see and then question the obvious realities of the world as they are today. So it's, it's a very powerful short read that changes your perspectives. I thought that was pretty good. And then the obvious one that everybody should read is Clay Christensen's how will you measure your life? Um, it's, it's really his guidelines for living a fulfilling, fulfilling life. And if you can look beyond the religious stuff in there, because he was very religious, it raises some really important questions and gives you a framework for how to make decisions in your own life. So 
those would be some of the books that I'd recommend. But if you want more, I've got hundreds of other books that I would happily recommend. You can't see the video on this, but I can vouch for that because Sophie has so many books around her and on bookshelves that there's no uh, no doubting that, that you're always a good person to go to for book recommendations. Um, what's a piece of um, garden content that you would recommend and, and how can people check it out? So the garden is currently free uh, for our founding members. We we won't be free forever. And the reason we won't be free forever is because we actually pay our academics, our speakers, our fellows, as we call them, to speak because we believe that academics and other experts are not valued enough. They're often asked to do things for free. And so we want to show that we you know, value them and uh, value their expertise. So it won't be free forever, but it is free right now. So go and become a founding member and, and join us. Um, and you can sign up at onegarden.com and you can access all the videos on demand. But I would encourage people to attend a live talk because it is a truly special experience to be able to put your learning question to a world expert in real time and hear their answer. It's very, it's very special. Uh, we, we, we cover topical issues. So for example, last week we had a talk by one of the world's experts on the history of Russia and Eastern Europe talking about what got us to the, the, the crisis in Ukraine, the Ukraine war, um, the history of Russia, the history of Ukraine, um, and where their, their historical roots start together and where they separate. And it's really, really invaluable at this moment in time to understand that. Um, we also had talks on the psychology of a dictator, you know, what turns a leader into a dictator. So we, we covered some topical issues. But through the lens of hearing from people who are true experts, this is not sound bites. This is not unsubstantiated opinion. This is deeply grounded research, but told through, you know, brilliant storytelling. Um, but we also have some wonderful talks looking at history and science. Um, one of my personal favorites was uh, by a, an academic called Dr. Leia Redmond Chang, who talked about Catherine de' Medici, the history of, of her life. Uh, Catherine de' Medici was a Renaissance queen, and she's depicted pretty badly um, in the in the history books. This this extraordinary woman, and Leia was able to talk about the realities of that, but also bring it back to the present day and say, you know, why do we hate to? Why do we love to hate a woman in power? Why do we villainize someone like Catherine, but also? make someone like Hillary Clinton also a villain? Are we, will history look at Hillary in the same way that it looks at Catherine and what can we learn from that? And I think there are lots of lessons we can learn from the past that um, are valuable in the present day, but also at the same time, it's, it's also interesting to look at some of the cutting edge research that's being done in the sciences and technology and, 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 you know, understand that. So it's, it really allows you to explore lots of different topics and light up your mind. Terrific. And if you were starting out your career, we've called this the kind of if you were 22 in 2022, where do you think you'd be looking? I really hope that I would have had the, the, the chutzpah, I guess, to um, start a company at that stage. I sort of floated around for about 10 years, not really knowing what I should do. You know, no one around me was a was an entrepreneur. No one around me was a business person and I didn't really know that that was an option. 
it wasn't something that was ever talked about at school or at university or you know, at any point in my early career. So I think if I was 22 now, I would definitely be looking at that route much earlier on and maybe save myself 10 years. Um, so I hope I would do that because I just love building companies. I love building teams. And I think it's a real privilege, as I said before, to, to be able to start something and create something that will exist in the world and hopefully change people's lives for the better. And there's a final question to pass the mic to another entrepreneur. Um, we've had a few of your sort of cohort and people like um, Kelly from ZigZag, who was one who was passed to us by Salima from KBox Global. So we've got a bit of a, a chain going on and you've been mentioned a couple of times as well. So it's been great to kind of leap that up. But are, are there some entrepreneurs out there that we might not have heard of yet that you think are worth getting on the show? Definitely. Okay. So one person that I would encourage you to, to invite is Tondai Moore, who is the founder of Rooker Hair. Tondai is a fantastic um, founder. She is founding a, a company that is about um, being the, the go-to brand globally for black women and black women's hair. Um, now, a lot of, a lot of um, startups in this space are looking at how do we create um, extensions for women, um, for black women. And uh, I think what Rooker has done is they've created a community They've created an extraordinary product. I mean, if you if you have the opportunity to to feel the the product, smell the product, it smells of coconuts. It's it's beautiful, um, and see the confidence that women get from having this beautiful product. You were you know you'll be very inspiring. But the vision is much bigger than just pre producing hair extensions and giving people a great experience. It's about becoming the go to brand for for not just black women actually, but women who have curly hair um and allowing them to celebrate their curls and their kinks and uh she's a she's a, a powerful extraordinary founder with a big vision and um it's an underserved market it's a really big market because you know when you look outside the uk and you look at america and you look at some of the african countries there is a huge opportunity here that is being uh ignored so tondo would be somebody i would absolutely recommend Definitely. Well, we'll look into that and may ask you for an introduction as we uh, look to plan our next series. Sophie, thanks so much. It's been brilliant to have you on and you must come back and we can do this in person at some point and you can tell us how the garden is evolving. I'd love that. Maybe you can come into the garden one day. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Brilliant. Thanks so much, Sophie. Thanks.